Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Emergency lights flickered through the cold walls of the Pont de l'Alma as Parisian authorities arrived at the scene. Smoke sputtered from the smashed black Mercedes S280 on the tunnel's far side. The hood of the car was crunched into the driver's seat. The authorities rushed to recover the crash victims. As they triaged, they found two of the four passengers were still alive. One was a bodyguard named Trevor Reese Jones. The other was one of the most famous women in Europe. Diana, the Princess of Wales, was trapped in the car, pinned by the mangled seats, horrified, the paramedics immediately began to cut her out of the wreckage. For seven tense minutes, the rescuers drilled into the twisted metal, trying to free the injured princess. Finally, around 12.33 a.m., they managed to pull Diana out of the car. She was barely breathing, but alive. They would have to act fast if they were going to save her life. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Diana Frances Spencer, the Princess of Wales. Nicknamed the People's Princess, Diana dedicated her adult life to founding and aiding charitable organizations around the globe. She personally cared for victims of cancer, AIDS, and leprosy, and was an advocate for dozens of impoverished nations. But Princess Diana is also remembered for her notorious public scandals. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, the world was enthralled by her turbulent marriage and very public divorce from Prince Charles, heir to the British throne. Today, we'll explore Diana's privileged early life, her scandal-ridden relationship with Prince Charles, and her tragic, untimely death. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. 
Now back to the life of Princess Diana. Princess Diana was born Diana Frances Spencer on July 1, 1961, in Sandringham, Norfolk. It was a quiet, beautiful little village on the coast of the North Sea. Her parents were Edward John Spencer, the 8th Earl Spencer, and Ruth Shand Kidd, Lady Althorpe. For the majority of Diana's early childhood, she lived in a manor called Park House. The word house is a little misleading, as the home was part of Queen Elizabeth II's Sandringham Estate and measured approximately 20,000 acres. Really, it was more like a country palace. The home was a favored destination for Queen Elizabeth II when she wanted to go on summer holiday. As such, young Diana was playmates with both Prince Andrew, the future Duke of York, and Prince Edward, the future Earl of Wessex. Although Diana wasn't royalty, her family was in the noble class. From a young age, she was exposed to the posh lifestyle of England's elite. But her blissful, idyllic childhood didn't last long. Shortly after Diana was born, her parents began to fight. According to Diana's biography, Diana, her true story in her own words, her father, Edward Spencer, was upset that his wife hadn't produced a male heir. This sounds like an archaic thing to drive a marriage apart, but even in the 1960s, a male heir was essential for a noble family to maintain their estate. Without a baby boy, the Spencers would lose their title and likely their land after Diana's father died. Edward was so frustrated with his wife that he forced her to go to a clinic and be examined for fertility problems. While Lady Althorpe did eventually give birth to a son named Charles in 1964, by then it was too late. She never forgave her husband for his treatment of her, and their marriage continued to decline. Sadly, this period in Diana's life likely set the stage for her own marital troubles she would experience as an adult. Diana's parents finally divorced in 1967. Both parents fought for custody of the children, but ultimately Edward won. It's likely Edward's status as an earl helped his claim. Life continued as normally as it could for the next few years. In 1967, seven-year-old Diana began attending Silfield Private School in Gayton, Norfolk, then, in 1973, when she was 13, she started at West Heath Girls' School in Seven Oaks, Kent. Diana struggled academically. In fact, when it came time to take her O-levels, which are standardized tests that prove English students have competently completed their education, she failed twice. Diana was very shy and struggled to make friends. She spent a lot of time alone, preferring to play piano, swim, and practice ballet in solitude. As she grew up, she came to appreciate the time she could spend alone, away from the drama of her family. But in 1976, when Diana was 15, the relative peace she had found for herself was blown apart when her father announced that he had married Rain McCorkadale, the Countess of Dartmouth. Edward hadn't mentioned to his children that he was in a relationship with Rain, let alone that he planned to propose, until the engagement was already official. 
Rain was known for her drinking and partying. She turned Diana's peaceful childhood home into, in the words of The Guardian's Lucy Mangjin, a Las Vegas-style gin palace. Diana found it all repulsive. Diana would refer to Rain as acid rain and hatefully chant, Rain, rain, go away, whenever she stayed with her father and new stepmother. We don't know what punishment Diana received as a result, but it's safe to assume it didn't help the domestic situation. Two years later, when she was 17, Diana moved into her mother's flat in London. She took cooking classes and did something that most nobles never dreamt of. She got a job. She didn't need the money, but she loved the idea of giving back to her community. By 1978, Diana was working as a dance instructor and also picked up work as a playground assistant. She found that she had a gift for helping people, especially young children. For the next few years, she enjoyed life in London with her mother and busied herself with as many part-time jobs as she could. These included working as a nanny, a party host, a nursery assistant, and a house cleaner. But in July 1980, when Diana was 19, her life changed forever when her friend Philip de Pass invited her to Prince Charles' 31st birthday celebrations at a country estate. As a prince, his birthday included several days of partying and, as an English prince, several games of polo. Now, from Diana's perspective, you might be able to say that she and Charles made a connection at this party and quickly fell in love as part of a whirlwind romance. But the real story is a bit more complicated than that. In the years leading up to this fateful 1980 birthday party, Charles had been engaged in a passionate but messy romance with Camilla Shand. The couple had dated throughout the early 1970s, but they broke up in 1973, allegedly due to Charles moving overseas to serve in the military. However, a likely additional reason is that Camilla was seen as too lowborn to be a suitable wife for the heir apparent to the English crown. Under social pressure from her own family, Camilla married Andrew Parker Bowles in 1973 and became Camilla Parker Bowles. However, when Charles returned from his military service, he and Camilla maintained a seemingly very friendly relationship that transitioned into a rather open affair at some point in the late 1970s. The royal family apparently had no problem with Charles carrying on the affair, so long as he eventually settled down with a wife who was deemed, quote, suitable to serve as the future queen consort. In the words of Lord Mountbatten, uncle to Charles's father, Prince Philip, quote, In a case like yours, the man should sow his wild oats and have as many affairs as he can before settling down. But I think for a wife, he should choose a suitable, attractive, and sweet character girl before she has met anyone else she might fall for. Translation, it's okay for a man of Charles' standing to have affairs, so long as he finds a sweet, virginal woman to marry. So in 1980, 31-year-old Charles was on the prowl for a wife, someone whom he could perform his royal responsibilities with while he still maintained his relationship with Camilla. And as luck would have it, this was exactly when he encountered Diana at his birthday party. 
Charles ended up asking Diana to join him that summer on his royal yacht, Britannia. Diana agreed, and the official courtship began. Word soon spread about Charles and Diana's relationship. Both his mother, the queen, and even his girlfriend, Camilla, urged Charles to marry Diana, who was seemingly a suitable kind of girl. Following this trip, Charles asked Diana to meet his family, including his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, at the royal family's favorite Scottish residence, Balmoral. On November 17, 1980, Diana met Queen Elizabeth II, her husband, Prince Philip, and Charles' grandmother, Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the Queen Mother. Queen Elizabeth II later said she enjoyed meeting Diana and found her well-spoken that afternoon. Even at this early stage in Diana and Charles's courtship, the press buzzed around the couple. They were fascinated with the young prince's love life, but there was something especially interesting about Diana. She was not a royal family member, and a crown prince hadn't married a non-royal in over 300 years. Even stranger, Charles and Diana only met 13 times before he proposed on February 6, 1981, with a ring that consisted of 14 solitaire diamonds surrounding a 12-carat blue Ceylon sapphire. It was the same ring currently worn by Diana's daughter-in-law, Kate Middleton, Duchess of Cambridge. At only 19 years old, Diana said yes to Charles and to royal life. It may have seemed that she was set, but her real challenges were just beginning. Up next, we'll explore the hostile bureaucratic landscape of the British monarchy and its dark effect on Diana. Now back to the story. After 19-year-old Lady Diana Spencer agreed to marry Charles, Prince of Wales, in February of 1981, they continued to move fast. The date was set for their wedding just six months later in July. Diana soon found she didn't have the happily ever after she'd imagined. As she was ill-equipped for the media attention she faced, she began to question if she was worthy of the royal family. This extreme anxiety was amplified by the way Charles treated her. He began to make remarks about her weight and even told Diana she was getting chubby after their engagement. Wrought with feelings of inadequacy, Diana developed bulimia in late February 1981, just a few weeks after her engagement. Every time she made herself sick, she felt a huge release of tension. That feeling became addictive. To make matters even worse, Charles didn't exactly have eyes only for his future wife in the months leading up to the wedding. In July of 1981, the same month she was set to be married, Diana came to suspect that Charles was still carrying on his affair with Camilla. She discovered that Charles had commissioned a bracelet for Camilla, and Diana even went to his office to find the piece of jewelry and confirm the suspicion for herself. She confronted Charles, who at that time was known to be seen wearing cufflinks that each bore the letter C. C and C, or Charles and Camilla. Charles seems like he wasn't exactly hiding what was going on. And why would he? His relationship with Camilla had transitioned into a public, ongoing affair. He didn't see any reason why he should give that up just because he was getting married. 
Naturally, though, this didn't sit with Diana at all. She was so distraught by the whole affair that she considered calling off the wedding. Ultimately, it was Diana's sisters, Sarah and Jane, who convinced her to go through with it. The wedding was a massive global publicity event that was going to draw the eyes of millions of people from around the world. The ordeal was simply bigger than the feelings of just one person, even though that person was the bride-to-be. Diana couldn't back down. And so, the wedding went forward as planned. On July 29, 1981, the day of the wedding, the streets around St. Paul's Cathedral were lined with over 600,000 spectators trying to catch a glimpse of Diana in her wedding gown. 750 million more watched the event from their televisions. At 11.20 a.m., Diana entered the cathedral wearing an ivory dress designed by famed dressmakers David and Elizabeth Emanuel. It featured a 25-foot train and 10,000 hand-sewn pearls. To put it simply, the dress was bold. The 25-foot train was seen by some tabloid writers as ostentatious and counterintuitive, in that the dress seemed to draw attention to itself rather than the future princess who was wearing it. But that blip of controversy was quickly snuffed out by the massive popularity of copycat styles. From her very first day as the Princess of Wales, Diana had established herself as a fashion icon. Once she was in the church, Diana knelt before the altar and pledged herself to her new husband and the British monarchy. I, Diana Francis. I, Diana Francis. Take thee, Charles Philip Arthur George. Take thee, Philip Charles Arthur George. To my wedded husband. To my wedded husband. With that, 20-year-old Diana became the Princess of Wales and the third highest-ranking woman in the royal family. Following the wedding, 32-year-old Prince Charles and the new Princess of Wales moved to Kensington Palace, a grandiose royal residence overlooking Kensington Gardens in London. Now married, Diana had one very important task, to produce the next British heir. On November 5, 1981, less than four months after the wedding, Princess Diana revealed she was pregnant with her first child. But the pressures of royal life were still mounting. Diana was expected to accompany Charles to royal events around the world. At the same time, she had to prepare to give birth to the heir to the British throne, and do so without ever seeming tense or strained. This stress was so intense that Diana actually attempted to injure herself early in the marriage. When she was 12 weeks pregnant, she threw herself down a staircase in her home. At the time, there was some debate as to whether this event was merely an accident, but Diana herself came forward years later to say she did it because she felt so inadequate in the royal family. She didn't try to hurt herself again, at least not in any way publicly known. Unsourced quotes indicate that she engaged in other methods of self-harm, like cutting, and may have even considered suicide. But it's difficult to determine where the rumors end and the facts begin. Regardless, from early on in her marriage, Diana felt suffocated by the tight hold that the royal family had on her life. She courted more controversy when she gave birth to her first child. 
And traditionally in England, a royal child was born at home. But Diana wanted her child to have the best medical treatment. So on June 21st, 1982, she gave birth to her first son, William, in the Lindo Wing of St. Mary's Hospital in London. This was the first time in history that an heir to the throne was born in a hospital. Queen Elizabeth II was upset about this decision, but Diana was uncompromising. She gave birth the way she felt was best. Animosity only continued to grow between Princess Diana and the Queen. Diana began to dress more boldly at public events with her husband and to show affection to her child in public. All of this was seen as highly inappropriate in the eyes of the monarchy. But Diana didn't really seem to care. She did the exact same thing with the birth of her second son, Harry, over two years later in September of 1984. Like William, Harry was born in St. Mary's Hospital. Diana was determined to break tradition with her parenting style. She couldn't give her sons totally normal lives. They were royals, and so was she. But she did want them to get a sense of what it was like to live as a common British citizen. According to Patrick Jeffson, Diana's chief of staff, Diana made sure William and Harry experienced things like going to the cinema, queuing up to buy McDonald's, going to amusement parks, those sorts of things that were experiences that they could share with friends. Diana also disregarded the royal expectation that her children needed a nanny and decided to attend to William and Harry herself. She drove them to school, picked out their clothes, and even planned their outings. Diana made her children the number one priority in her life. She made sure all of her royal obligations, like visiting hospitals, were scheduled around them. And there were a lot of royal events to attend. Diana averaged 200 royal engagements a year in the 1980s. She realized her visits drew media attention to impoverished communities and suffering people, and she could use that media attention as a beacon for charity and social change. The best example of this came in 1987, when the 25-year-old Diana took up the cause of AIDS research. Throughout the 1980s, the AIDS epidemic had spread fear across the world. The public didn't understand how the disease spread, so people were terrified to even touch victims of the disease. Public leaders were even reluctant to say the word AIDS because it was considered such a dirty subject. On April 19, 1987, Diana arrived at London Middlesex Hospital to speak with some AIDS patients. That day, she shook hands with one of the patients without wearing gloves. This may not seem like a huge gesture now, but back in the 1980s, touching an AIDS patient unprotected was considered dangerous. A photograph of the handshake circulated around the globe in a matter of days and helped to both humanize AIDS patients and destigmatize the disease. But not everyone saw Diana's work as heroic. In fact, Queen Elizabeth II publicly stated that the princess should get involved with, quote, something more pleasant. Diana defended her actions, saying, quote, HIV does not make people dangerous to know. You can shake their hands and give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. What's more, you can share their homes, their workplaces, and their playgrounds and toys. While Diana was battling the stigma around AIDS, her relationship with Charles grew worse by the day. 
By 1987, only six years into their marriage, he was growing cold to her and would leave for days at a time. Officially, Charles reported that the 13-year gap in their ages was beginning to strain their relationship, but Diana couldn't help but wonder if something more scandalous was afoot. Diana decided to confront Charles' ex-girlfriend, Camilla. She had reason to believe that their relationship had never actually ended. Even though years had passed and they were both married to other people, Camilla continued to flaunt a bracelet Charles had made for her at public events. Diana finally approached Camilla at a party in 1989. Charles was apparently alarmed that the two women wanted to meet, but watched as they found a private room. Diana later reported she was terrified to talk with Camilla, but she was too hurt and upset to give up. When they were alone, Diana asked Camilla about her involvement with Charles. Camilla played coy and pretended not to understand what Diana was talking about. But by the end of the conversation, she scolded Diana for trying to learn the truth. Camilla said, quote, You've got everything you ever wanted. You've got all the men in the world to fall in love with you, and you've got two beautiful children. What more do you want? Diana responded, I want my husband. Following this encounter, Diana and Charles had another fight about his infidelity. According to Diana, Charles got angry and scolded her until she cried. He didn't comfort her, and even worse, he continued his relationship with Camilla. The rest of the royal family didn't seem to mind that Diana was suffering. Without any kind of social support, she sought solace with a childhood friend named James Gilby in the early 1990s. Their affair became sexual and came to light in 1992, courtesy of a 70-year-old retired bank manager named Cyril Renan. Cyril and his wife enjoyed listening to non-commercial radio frequencies in their spare time. It was in one of these listening sessions that he recorded Diana and James Gilby talking intimately. On the tape, Gilby affectionately called Diana Squidgy and Squidge, and Diana talked about her concern that he might have gotten her pregnant. Unfortunately for Diana, two reporters from local newspaper The Sun caught wind of Cyril's recording of Diana and quickly acquired a tape. On August 23, 1992, they released it to the public. This tape quickly became an international scandal. Nicknamed Squidgygate, after the unusual pet name Gilby used for Diana, it proved that Diana was unfaithful to her husband and the crown. This controversy made Diana deeply paranoid about the press and the royal family. She began to suspect that she was being recorded or even bugged in her everyday life. But she was not going to back down easily. In the early 1990s, Diana decided to fight fire with fire. She was going to reveal to the world the dark underbelly of the British monarchy. They would understand who their future king really was. Up next, we'll hear one of the most scandalous stories in the history of the British monarchy. Now back to the story. In the early 1990s, Princess Diana's public image was suffering. Her affair with James Gilby had become a global story, and she was now being accused of harming the royal family's image. In 1993, she described her feelings at a public luncheon. 
But I was not aware of how overwhelming that attention would become, nor the extent to which it would affect both my public duties and my personal life in a manner that's been hard to bear. The more Diana made the public aware of her situation, the more sympathy they offered her. They wanted to understand what was going on behind the scenes of the British royal family. Diana took the opportunity to sit for a series of interviews with her friend, journalist Andrew Morton, to document her side of the story. In these interviews, Diana revealed graphic details of the long affair Prince Charles had with Camilla. She even divulged a recorded phone conversation between Charles and Camilla from 1989. The conversation between the two of them was, to be blunt, graphic. This story, which came to be known as Camillagate, was so scandalous that Charles' right to the throne came into question. Diana herself said the tape was disgusting and proved that Charles wasn't fit to be king. Both Charles and Diana were using the media as a weapon against each other, exposing the other's worst secrets to the press and the world. By 1992, the couple was officially separated. The Prime Minister of England, John Major, formally announced the separation to the public. Charles even went on TV and confirmed to the world that he had been engaged in an affair with Camilla since 1986, though in reality, they had likely been carrying on since long before that date. Diana enjoyed her time away from her estranged husband, but became acutely aware of how the constant negative attention on her marriage might affect her two sons. She made the conscious choice to take a step back from public events in the interest of giving her sons some semblance of privacy. Over the next few months, I will be seeking a more suitable way of combining a meaningful public role with hopefully a more private life. This vicious back and forth was too much for Queen Elizabeth II to bear. On December 20th, 1995, She sent letters to Charles and Diana advising them to divorce as soon as possible. For once, Diana and Queen Elizabeth agreed on something. In February 1996, 34-year-old Diana publicly announced her divorce. This, too, upset the British monarchy, who wanted to manage the publicity surrounding the split. Diana's audacity was seen as uncivilized behavior. A few contentious months later, in July 1996, the couple finally agreed to the terms of the divorce. Diana would remain in Kensington Palace with her two sons. She would also receive a lump settlement of 17 million pounds, or about $27 million. Each year after the split, she would receive an additional 400,000 pounds, or $600,000. But Diana would no longer carry the title of Her Royal Highness and was prohibited from talking about the divorce in any capacity. The divorce was finalized on August 29, 1996. After the divorce, Charles was free to go back to Camilla. Not that this was any particularly major change for him, since they'd been carrying out the affair for over a decade. 
Over the next few years, Diana continued to raise money for AIDS research. In 1997, 35-year-old Diana auctioned off 79 of her most iconic dresses and donated all of the proceeds to support AIDS research. And she, too, soon found new romance, far away from the British crown. In July of 1997, just after she had turned 36, Diana began dating Dodi Fayed, a 42-year-old Egyptian billionaire and film producer who had worked on films like Hook and Chariots of Fire. The couple embarked on a six-week vacation across the Mediterranean Sea, much to the delight of the world press, which was still very invested in Diana and her love life. And Diana seemed very invested in Dodie. She even had William and Harry, then 15 and 12, flown out to spend time with her and Dodie on the trip. Tabloid reporters ate this up. At that time, Dodie was still technically engaged to the American model Kelly Fisher. The fact that he had absconded, with a princess no less, and was now meeting her children, was just too good of a story to resist. Diana, who had spent years being torn apart by paparazzi for her apparent failure to live up to her duties as the Princess of Wales, actually leaned into this attention. She even sent word through her own press contact to prepare for some sort of announcement on August 31st. Unfortunately, we'll never know what that announcement was intended to be. August 30th, 1997 was supposed to be just another day in paradise. Dodie and Diana woke up that morning in the sun-drenched luxury of Dodie's yacht and set about preparing for their return trip to England. Diana had not seen her children in weeks and was eager to return home. But first, she and Dodie had a dinner reservation in Paris. They boarded Dodie's private jet at 11.30 that morning and landed in Paris at 3.20. Then they split up for a few hours, Diana had a hair appointment, and Dodie had an appointment of his own. He went to Reposy Jewelers to buy a ring, which notably was from the Tell Me Yes collection. In the 20-plus years since that fateful night, much has been made about this particular purchase and the possibility that it was an engagement ring. We'll never know what Dodie's intentions were as he met Diana for what was to be the last meal either of them would ever eat. They met back up at the Ritz Hotel and set out for dinner at Benoit Paris, where they had a reservation. But the couple found themselves overwhelmed with paparazzi and decided to forego their reservation and return to the Ritz to eat there. After their meal, Dodie and Diana set about the somewhat complicated task of getting back to Dodie's apartment without being hounded by the press. They employed the services of Henri Paul, the head of security at the Ritz. Paul ensured that a decoy vehicle was dispatched from the hotel, and the ploy worked. A number of reporters followed the car, hoping to catch additional glimpses of the couple. With the coast relatively clear, Henri then ushered Dodie and Diana into the back of a black Mercedes S280, along with their bodyguard, Trevor Reese Jones. Henri Paul, by all accounts, had no business assisting the couple that night. He was supposed to be off, and he was certainly unable to drive. 
Though there are discrepancies as to what and how much he had to drink, the general account is that Henri Paul had at least two drinks that night before he got behind the wheel of the car. It was likely more than that. His autopsy would later reveal that he had a blood alcohol content of over three times the legal limit in France. Additionally, Henri had prescription antidepressants in his system that, mixed with alcohol, were surely affecting his motor skills. Nevertheless, Henri drove the car away from the Ritz. At that same time, the paparazzi discovered the ruse and returned in time to start following the S-280. It is because of the photographs taken by these pursuing journalists that we know that neither Dodie nor Diana were wearing seatbelts that night. Doty asked Henri to take an indirect route back to his apartment in the hopes that they would lose some of their pursuers along the way. Henri obliged and drove toward the Pont de l'Alma tunnel. The car entered the tunnel between 12.22 and 12.23 on the morning of Sunday, August 31st, 1997. The posted speed limit in the tunnel was 31 miles per hour. Henri was driving at around 65 miles per hour. Soon after the car entered the tunnel, it smashed into a white Fiat Uno, swerved and crashed right into a pillar. The car crumpled under the force of the impact. Dodi and Henri were both killed instantly. The first rescuers arrived on the scene within 10 minutes of the collision. Those initial reports indicated that Diana was actually fine. She was conscious, shaken, but only with a few visible external injuries. It wasn't until they made efforts to remove Diana from the car that the real problems became evident. Diana went into cardiac arrest as they pulled her from the crumpled vehicle. The French rescue workers quickly moved to stabilize and resuscitate her. Now in France, it's standard practice to stabilize an injured victim at the scene of an accident before making efforts to move them to a hospital. In the decades since that tragic night, British and American health professionals have criticized the actions that the French rescue workers took. If they had followed British procedures and rushed her straight to a hospital, well, who knows how things might have turned out differently. The rescue workers successfully got Diana's heart beating again, and a doctor on the scene gave her drugs to calm her down. Minutes later, Diana had another heart attack. Rescue workers resumed administering CPR and then started to make preparations to move her to a hospital. It's notable that PTA Salpetrier, the hospital in question, was not the closest medical facility to the crash site, but the workers who made the call felt it was better equipped to help Diana. Over an hour after the crash, at 1.41 in the morning, the rescue workers finally got Diana into the ambulance and started making way for a hospital. The ambulance drove slow out of fear that a fast-moving vehicle might exacerbate Diana's condition. Her blood pressure was dropping. At one point, the ambulance pulled over so that the doctors on board could try to stabilize her once again. Diana finally reached the hospital at just after 2 in the morning. The doctors who received her only then realized the full scope of her injuries. The sudden, severe impact of the crash had actually shifted the position of Diana's heart in her chest. 
She was bleeding internally from tears in her cardiac veins. She was in bad shape when she arrived, and there was little the doctors could do for her by that point. At four in the morning on August 31, 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, was declared dead. Officially, the crash was labeled as the result of Henri Paul's reckless driving. But this horrific collision and Princess Diana's sudden, tragic death have ignited conspiracy theories. Some have claimed the death of Princess Diana was engineered. The most popular theory is that the British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, killed Diana on behalf of the Crown. This theory is best supported by a journal entry from Princess Diana herself, which stated her belief that the royal family would stage an accident to make room for a new queen consort. It's clear the royal family didn't like Diana at the time of her death, but organizing an assassination after she had already officially divorced Prince Charles seems excessive. Another popular theory is that Diana was pregnant with Dodi Fayed's child at the time of her death, and the British family didn't want their future king to have a Muslim half-brother. But no matter how she really died, Princess Diana's loss was felt around the world. Diana's funeral took place on September 6, 1997, in Westminster Abbey, her private burial followed later that day at her family's home. Over 20 years after her untimely death, Princess Diana remains one of the most famous members of the British royal family. That's just a little ironic, given she married into and then subsequently divorced out of that family over the course of her life. Beyond the sudden, tragic, and to some, bizarre circumstances of her death, Diana lived on in the form of her public image, her status as a style icon, and her very publicized charitable work. Much of her estate, including her dresses, jewelry, and furniture, has been auctioned off or displayed for the public, with the proceeds going to charity. And, of course, her two sons, William and Harry, have come into their own as public figures with their internationally televised weddings in 2011 and 2018, respectively, as well as their charity work. The tragedy of Diana's death stays with us because of how sudden and unexpected it was. But her impact on Britain and the world lives on to this day. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. If you're interested in more in-depth discussion of the conspiracy theories we mentioned in this episode, check out ParCast's other show, Conspiracy Theories, where my co-host Molly and I covered the controversy around Princess Diana's death. You can find all previous episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by David Turk. 
Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Historical Figures was written by Michael Herman and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.